0: Welcome to Ebenezer Baptist Church on Communion Sunday, May 4th, 2014. Today's message is, It Takes Church to Raise a Christian, by Dr. Lyle Schrag, based on Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19-25. Would you pray together with me? And Gracious Heavenly Father, this is a holy place. It has been set apart in our hearts. We realize that you inhabit the whole heavens and earth, but there is something special about this place, and there is something even more special about this time, for it is holy in our hearts. And yet, at the same time, it is also so familiar. So familiar that we might somehow overlook and miss the great spiritual drama, the dimensions of heaven that inhabit this place because you are here. I pray that you would give us the eyes of the spirit that we might be able to see. The holiness of this place and of this moment and Lord, even prepare our hearts for the, for the richness of this table so that we might be able to see ourselves as you see us new creatures as that we might be able to see each other as you see us members of a of a of a wonderful family that we might be able to see you in all of your majesty and glory for you inhabit this place and lord you inhabit our prayers you inhabit the thoughts of our minds and lord we give ourselves to you speak to us i pray In the powerful name of the one who loved us and gave himself for us, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord, in his name we pray. Amen. Well, as we are in the aftermath of Easter, I was reminded of an imaginary story. There's nothing canonical about this, but I don't have a chapter and verse, but the story is told that Jesus appeared in heaven just after his ascension. And after giving a progress report on all that had happened while he was on earth, Moses uh, came and asked him a question. He said, well, Jesus, did you leave things in capable hands? And Jesus' response was, I I did. I have left Mary and Martha and Peter and the other disciples. Uh, Moses said, well, what if they fail? And Jesus said, well, I've established the church and I've filled it with the Holy Spirit and they will carry on. And Moses said, well, what if they fail? Came Jesus' reply, I have no other plan. When you consider the implications of the Great Commission, as it sets upon the church, that in obedience to the full authority of Jesus Christ, that we are to go and make disciples of all nations. If we take that, the Great Commandment, and then also take the Great or the great commission and then the great commandment for the church that in the same spirit of Jesus Christ that we are to love one another even as he has loved us maybe that story isn't as imaginary as we would think that in fact he has established the church and is filled with his Holy Spirit with every intention that you and I here and now are actually plan A in the kingdom of God because there is no other plan And if that is the case, we've got some serious work to do in this day and age. Especially when you consider a trend that seems to have taken root in the heart of our day and age. Now I'm sure this one that you've heard, and and for some it has become almost a creed, a phrase that they're able to say that sounds so noble and honorable. And it goes a little bit like this. I love Jesus, but I have no time for the church. I love Jesus... And I am proud to say I hate the church. It appears we have entered a particular age. I'm sure you've heard that phrase. And we've entered an age where for the first time in the history of Christianity, believers are actually able to assume the ability to conceive of their faith as a relationship with God without having a relationship with God's people, the church. We've come a long way, really. Really? from the early church uh, where St. Cyprian of Carthage made it very clear, and his creed was this, no one can have God as father that does not have the church as mother. Think about that one for a while. No one can claim God as father who does not then find the church as mother. All the books are out there, books like so You Don't Want to Go to Church Anymore by Jake Colson or Life After Church by Brian Sanders. I've been reading them. As I've been in the seminar, I've been working through this attitude with students. In fact, in that book by Sanders, he had a manifesto for those who have adopted the creed of loving Jesus and hating the church. He calls them leavers. At that, as I read that, I remember thinking to myself how things have shifted over my years in ministry. At one time as a pastor, when I first started in ministry, I was challenged with a mission to reach seekers. But now I find myself more and more confronted with a harder mission, reaching leavers. To not only love Jesus, but to love his bride. I have to laugh, uh, over uh, the Easter, you know how the media will oftentimes pick up you know, these themes and uh, the uh, story of Jesus' wife, the little text that came up, a Harvard professor found it and has written a big book about it. It ended up being a hoax, but have you, have you all, did you all come across that? I, I, I love one pastor wrote back and says, I, I've met his wife. It's the church. It's us. On the other hand, while those books are out there and those thoughts are out there, I've also noted a, a pushback recently coming with books like Stop Dating the Church by Josh Harris. I, I like that one because the subtitle of the Stop Dating the Church, is Get Married. <laughs> and there, there are others. There's a book called Why We Love the Church by Kevin DeYoung and, and Ted Cluck. And my particular favorite is It Takes a Church to Raise a Christian. And that's by Todd Bolsinger. And the subtitle of Bolsinger's book describes that pushback in very simple and yet profound biblical terms. He says the community of God transforms lives. Let me repeat that. The community of God is God's instrument to transform lives, the mothering agent of faith. You see, when you consider why God formed you and transformed you, it was not so that you might live a life of isolation, or independence from others. Yes, God loves you. Yes, God wants to have a relationship with you. And yes, in that relationship, you were created to reflect his image with complete and utter character. But he also has much more in mind. I like the way it reads in Ephesians chapter 1. His unchanging plan has always been to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. That's what it says. And this gave him great pleasure. This is the pleasure of God, to adopt us into that family. We were created to be together with God and with each other, and we are family. And that, too, is how God reflects his image in each one of us with even greater clarity. As we find in 1 John 4, verse 11, God so loved us, so also ought we to love one another. Our purpose, or better, God's purposes for our lives requires meaningful and substantial uh, living and loving relationships among each other. I love the way that one uh, author has responded in this way. He says, the purpose of our time on earth is not primarily about acquiring possessions or attaining status or achieving success or even experiencing happiness. Those are all secondary issues. Life is about loving and developing relationships with God and with other people. You may succeed in many areas, but if you fail to learn how to love God and love others, You will have missed the reason God has created you and placed you on this planet. Learning to love one another is life's most important lesson. Jesus called it the greatest commandment in Matthew chapter 22. Nothing else comes close to that in importance. We were created to be together. It is who, as men and women of God, we were made and meant to be. Now, the author of that was Rick Warren, who followed up his book, The Purpose-Driven Life, you may be familiar with, with one that was called Better Together. Now, I don't know how you may feel about Rick Warren, but those two books were based upon the two critical questions that we need to ask of ourselves in life. The first is, what on earth am I here for? I trust you've asked that question at some point in your life. What on earth am I here for? And the answer is quite simple. God made you. And you find your sense of purpose and meaning in life only in a relationship with him. And that relationship is found in Jesus Christ. As you are able to answer that first question, then you are prepared for the second question. And the question is, what on earth are we here for? And I might pause at that moment and say that what I'm doing here with this message is introducing a theme that will take us into June and through up to the summertime. And it was one that I, has come out of a time of prayer together with you because I realize that a church that comes to a point that you are at in the process of having enjoyed a ministry with a pastor but now finding that, that, that there is a transition taking place and, and, and there's, there, there's kind of a, a cloudy future there as to where another pastor comes will be needing to ask that question. What on earth are we here for? The answer to the question of why am I going to church may, in fact, percolate in the heart. And, and you may ask it to question: why should I love the church? I, I do want to love Jesus, but I, but I have to refresh my vows. And I need to get that marriage refreshed once again. So the second question is there, what on earth are we here for? After all, God's unchanging plan has been not only to adopt us to himself as father, but to adopt us into a family, as we read in Ephesians. And we better have a good idea of what it means to be part of that family and a healthy amount of love and respect for that family, for our church. Among the seven reasons that Rick Warren listed for why he believes in the local church in his book, Better Together... And by the way, that's a, that's a wonderful little exercise to do. Come up with some reasons. Write them down. Why do I believe in the local church? It's a great little exercise. Anyhow, among the seven reasons that he has, I'm going to point out the one that seems to stand out in my heart for this morning. I believe in the local church because I need it in order to become the person, the man or the woman, that God meant me to be. When you go through the Bible, you discover quickly that God has designed us in such a way that we need other people to be around in order for for God to bring the spirit alive within us. For, for, For it to be broken out. Without other people present, the spirit of God is in fact prevented from doing his best work in our lives. Did you know that? In the New Testament, there is a unique word that is used to describe God's law of spiritual dynamics. It's the word alelon, or what we have translated in our English uh, scriptures as one another, one another. You'll find that in the New Testament, that particular word appears 93 times. The Apostle Paul leads the list of occurrences with using it 40 times. Let me list a number of the ways in which that word appears in Romans chapter 12. So we who are many are one body in Christ and, here it is, members of one another. Romans 12 verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Romans 12 verse 10. Honor one another above yourselves. Romans 15. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another. Romans 15, verse 7. Accept one another just as Christ has accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Romans 15:14 admonish one another. Romans 16 greet one another. Galatians 5 serve one another in love. Galatians 6 bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Ephesians 4 be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bear with one another in love. Ephesians 5 submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, 1 Thessalonians 5. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. Earlier in the service, I, I read the service, those six verses of Hebrews was read. Twice in those six verses, we find that word appearing again. Let us consider how to spur one another toward love and good deeds. Let us encourage one another. One another one another, one another, we need each other to be able to experience what God wants to do in our lives. Did you notice that I missed one in that whole list? I, I kind of rattled them off. I, I don't know if you were taking notes, but uh, in marking down the passages, they will in fact be passages we will look at in the next few months. But did I miss one that stands out above all others? Can anybody think of one? Bingo. Oh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that in a church, should I? <laughs> Absolutely. Love one another is the biggest, it's, it's probably the, the most frequent one of all. Love one another. Of the 96 plus references we have of that word, there are 16 that come with that command that we are to love one another. It's powerful stuff. So let me ask you, why do you love one another, as you ask that question, why do you love the church? Let me drill it deeper. Why do you love the Ebenezer Baptist Church? What is it about this family that you love and that calls love out of you toward another? Take a look around you. Why are these people important to you? What value do you have in the relations that that you share with one another? Love one another. Let me suggest one really good reason. You need each other in order to become, as Rick Warren put down, the man or the woman that God intended you to be from the beginning of time. A few moments ago, I, I just mentioned that that God has designed us in such a way that other people have to be around in order for Him to bring His Spirit alive in us. Without other people present, the Spirit of God is prevented from doing His best work in our lives. Let me illustrate that principle at work. Can you imagine, uh, can you think of any passage in the Bible that describes what work the Spirit of God wants to accomplish in your life? Can you think of any passage? Let me suggest one Galatians chapter 5. You're familiar with the phrase as it goes. For the fruit of the Spirit is, what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law, we read. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with his passions and desires, and we live by the Spirit. Let us keep in step with that Spirit. Now, when you think of the fruits of the Spirit, ask yourself the question, what do they mean? For example, when when you hear joy identified as the fruit of the Spirit, what does that mean? Or peace, what does that mean? And how would you describe Holy Spirit peace? For many people, those traits are viewed as something very personal and very independent. It's something that's hammered out just between you and God. But I want to take that one step further. If you have your Bible, you will notice that in that passage in Galatians chapter 5, It actually begins with this in verse 13. You all, I can say that because I'm American, y'all were called to be free. But do not use your freedom or your sinful, uh, uh, sinful nature. Rather, serve one another, and there's that word, in love. And then Paul repeats Jesus from Matthew by saying the entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let me suggest... Out of that, that the fruits of the Spirit are best understood as traits that are relational in nature, not independent or individual. They require the presence of other people in order to come alive. They are relational traits. And because of that, you have to be in a committed fellowship, a congregation where everyone is working toward the same target, yielded to the same Spirit to fully grow in God's direction. Let me see if I can illustrate that change of thought. As long as peace is understood as an individual trait, you can experience it all alone. It's just inner tranquility. Whenever a person says, I've got the fruit of the Spirit in me, I have peace, it's kind of like, <laughs> inner tranquility. But the fact is, the word as it is used in Galatians does not speak of, inner, uh, of in, internal uh, tranquility, but of interpersonal harmony. The peace that is spoken of here requires somebody else to be present who makes it difficult to have to come to peace. Do you understand that? It's a relational trait. Same thing with love. Same thing with joy. As these words are used, it takes hard work because you have to work them out with other people. Joy. That's another one of those things. You probably tickle yourself silly and then call it joy, but it is not the joy of the book of Galatians. That root of the word speaks of the ability to rejoice. And as you realize in the scriptures, that word is used that you rejoice, what? With those who rejoice, as well as weep with those who weep. The fact is, we need each other. And it's no surprise that we find... That are as our mandate when we turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Let us then consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good dates. You may have thought, <laughs> you may have woken up this morning and thought that coming to church was just a, a casual visit for yourself. You are wrong. You may have thought that joining a small group, a Bible study, was just a chance to relax. But you are wrong. There is a lot more at stake in being together than you may think. Especially if you choose to take the word of God seriously and then take from that a consideration on how to spur each other on toward living out the love of God. The stakes are huge and are much deeper than we would ever think. In fact, their depth is measured by the very nature of God. In his book, It Takes a Church to Raise a Christian, Todd Bolsinger explained that the value of our fellowship is rooted in a God who understands and defines the very nature of fellowship. It's that dynamic that Jesus described in in John 17. He said, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, and may they, that is the, the church, also be in us so that the world may believe. And with his words, he paints a picture of the divinity which is in the scripture of one of fellowship, of trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in relationship, valuing relationship, the synergy and the energy of it all in relationship. It is a an image that may be hard to grasp, but in his book, Bolsinger turned to a 15th century icon by Andre Rublov for help and I have found it to be very helpful for myself as well. It's, it's as it were visual theology. The icon is called the Holy Trinity and I have it I think on the slide. There it is. Not the two hands the one on the side over here. As Rublov painted it, and it's gonna sound like an art appreciation course here for just a second. As Rublev painted it, there are three divine figures that are gathered around a common table. Unlike other paintings where the spirit is portrayed as a dove or a light, the trinity here is uniquely depicted as one of the three persons with personality. And all the three share equal rule. It is symbolized by their staffs. You may not see that, but it is held in their hands. They have staffs, which symbolizes the authority that they possess. And they are in loving communion. You'll notice that because it is symbolized by their heads as they are inclined to one another. And it is joined together by a common table and a common cup. By the way, choir, feel free to turn around and look at the picture as I'm saying this. <laughs> okay. can, you, can you all see that? You can see the, the staffs a little bit better than everybody else out there. Okay. And, 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 they're, and they're joined together around a common table and a common cup. Keep that image in mind. The table symbolizes the fellowship they share, share but even more, the fellowship that they offer. Because the cup that they share is set in an open place at the table. And because of the two-dimensional nature of icons as they have been painted, the eye of those who see it is actually drawn into the picture. And here, using that two-dimensional aspect or dimension, we are drawn then into the fellowship and the intimacy of the table because that seat is left open for us. Fellowship with the Father. And in reflecting on this illustrated theology, Bolsinger says, understanding God in divine communion leads us to better understand ourselves also. Since God, the divine person, is a communion, human personhood means that we exist in relationship with one another as well. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, this is a powerful vision that transfigures just getting together. Whether it's on church on Sunday or in home uh, in, in home in a small group. But whatever it is, when we are together, it is a divine appointment. And we are taking a seat at the table before the Trinity. And it's a powerful vision that we carry into the sharing of the Lord's Supper. We sit together in the presence of a God who has loved us, together with the children of this heavenly family, and it is a vision that makes worth believing in the church. It is a vision that allows us to see each other with greater clarity as much as it is a picture that allows us to see God in all of his glory. Seeing each other in that light seated together in the presence of God, puts us in a position of really making a difference in each other's lives and in the lives of our community and the lives of our world. That's how it works. And that is what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, then now let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, spurring one another on to love and good deeds. Let me close with a story. Something that happened actually at the Olympic Games in Sydney, Australia. And some of you may remember. Something happened there that captured my imagination. Eric, also known as the swimmer, Musambani of Equatorial Guinea, became a hero at those games. <laughs> the 22-year-old African had only learned to swim seven months before the games. <laughs> By special invitation of the uh, International Olympics Committee that permitted poorer nations to participate, even though their athletes didn't meet the customary standards, Musambani was entered into the 100 men's freestyle. (laughs) By some freak of sport, the race was actually marred uh, by false starts. Each time, swimmers would dive in before the beep, and they were disqualified until Musambani was left alone on the stars. Later, he confessed that he didn't jump because he still hadn't gotten over his fear of water. (laughs) After three false starts, he was the only swimmer left in his heat. So when the beep went off, and after taking a very deep breath, he went ahead and jumped in. And to use the words of the Associated Press as they reported on this, he swam in a manner that was charmingly inept. (laughs) How how diplomatic. Charmingly inept. He never put his head under the water surface. He flailed wildly just to stay afloat. It was called the freestyle, but it looked more like a dog paddle on steroids. With, with, with 10 meters left to the wall, he virtually came to a stop, and some spectators thought he might drown. And in fact, a few swimmers came out of the locker room, kind of like the Baywatch squad, uh, uh, th- th- looking to save him. But even though his time was over a minute slower than the slowest time already recorded, the capacity crowd of the Olympic Aquatic Center stood to their feet and they cheered him on. After what seemed like an eternity, Musambani finally reached the wall and then hung on for dear life until the lifeguards pulled him out. After he caught his breath and he gained his composure, he was addressing the crowd that was remaining, standing and cheering for him. And he said to them through the loudspeakers, I want to send hugs and kisses to this crowd. It was your cheering that kept me going. It was your cheering that kept me alive. <laughs> Let us spur one another on to love and good deeds. Listen, we may be saints on the inside, each and every one of us, because of Jesus Christ, but in the race of life, every single one of us are, in fact, charmingly inept. And in desperate need of a cheer. And if it doesn't come from the ones who are sitting around us right here and right now, the chances are it will not come at all, especially when you need it the most. But since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, we don't have to wait to consider how we may spur on one another toward love and good deeds. We have everything already that we need to get her done, do we not?